Matthew chapter 2, and we'll commence our reading there at verse 16. Matthew 2, starting here at verse 16. Hear once again the holy word of our holy God. Then Herod, when he saw that he was mocked of the wise men, was exceeding wroth, and sent forth and slew all the children that were in Bethlehem, and in all the coasts thereof, from two years old and under, according to the time which he had diligently inquired of the wise men. Then was fulfilled that which was spoken by Jeremy the prophet, saying, In Ramah was there a voice heard, lamentation and weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and would not be comforted, because they are not. But when Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared, appeareth in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise, and take the young child and his mother. And go into the land of Israel, for they are dead, which sought the young child's life. And he arose and took the young child and his mother and came into the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus did reign in Judea in the room of his father Herod, he was afraid to go thither. Notwithstanding, being warned of God in a dream, he turned aside into the parts of Galilee. And he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophets. He shall be called a Nazarene. Amen. And thus far the reading of God's word. And may he bless it to us richly this morning. Beloved, before we come to our text, I think it's right for us time and again as we approach the word of God, to remember that kind of posture that you and I are to have. Beloved, when we come under this word, we are a people who are saying that that this is a word that needs to correct us. That this is a word that needs to shape us because we need to be shaped. This is a word that is to set before us, even now, even this morning, that kind of correction that will rectify in us what needs to be rectified so that we might be made more Christ-like. And beloved, if we approach, of course, any text this way, and even in some sense, especially our text this morning in this way, then beloved, I think we'll see the application is very close to home. Here we see the Lord Jesus Christ Here we have, again, as we said last Lord's Day, a picture of what godliness really is. This is the pattern. He is Savior, and as the apostles say, He is exemplar for the godly. And if that's the case, then, beloved, our our posture toward this text must be one of earnest desire that this image will correct us will indeed shape us more into the Christ that it holds before us. And beloved, if we approach the text that way, then you'll notice here that the writer is setting before us Christ once more. Before we thought about the carnage that came, because men still hated Christ. 
We thought about the violence that comes into the world, in this case through Herod, because Herod is still an enemy to Christ. But when we come to this text, it is the, fact, it is the case that Christ now once again becomes our principal focus. Now we see our Christ, yes, in his infancy, yes, in his minority, but we see our Christ. And what do we see as we see him? Well, beloved, the text really divides itself into three categories. You have an event that takes place in the beginning. Before we come to Christ, we're told that Herod was dead. This great persecutor of the cause of God in Israel. Uh, This one who is notoriously a tyrant, even so much so that the Caesars saw him as a tyrannical ruler. He's dead. Dead roughly roughly around the 25th of November, the same year that he kills his own son Antipater. But Herod dies in the midst of a growing a growing angst in Palestine against his rule and more broadly against Roman rule. You and I should know that Herod does not die in peace. He dies in the midst of great turmoil in his home and all throughout his realm. But then you have in our text not just the note that Herod has died. You have again another command. An angel of the Lord appeareth in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise, and take the young child and his mother, and go into the land of Israel. This is the third dream that Joseph has. And I want you to notice, beloved, the writer sets before us, Matthew, the inspired historian, sets before us this idea that Joseph only moves at divine command. He only flees, well, really, he only adopts Christ. Formally, in the the end of chapter 1, because of the dream. He only leaves Bethlehem because God has told him to do so. And he only returns back to his homeland, even, even despite all the pressures of exile and being a refugee. He only leaves that difficulty when God gives him leave to do so. This is a man who is really committed to the word of God. When God says something, he does it. I don't think we can miss that in the text. And then we find here that when he heard that Archelaus did reign in Judea, uh, in, the, in the text, the sense is that this was exactly what was told him. Once he came into the land, Joseph was told Archelaus is king. That's what it means literally in the Greek. When he's told this, that he rules in the room of his father Herod, he was afraid to go thither. And so Joseph pauses. And the sense, of course, you can imagine... The sense is Joseph intends to continue his onward journey. And where would he go? If Christ is indeed the son of David, if he is the Messiah, if he is the princely redeemer that has been prophesied through the running ages, where will Joseph take him? It's an inference only from the text, but you could imagine him going to Jerusalem, couldn't you? But of course in Jerusalem, Archelaus is there a man who is pretty much the spitting image of his own father, Herod. But then the text continues, Notwithstanding being warned of God in a dream, the fourth dream, he turned aside into the parts of Galilee. The fourth dream Joseph has, the the words are in the text, God warned him. The text, you could translate also, God commanded him. The the words are translated in the same way in various texts. The Lord calls him, to go 
Galilee instead. The sense is, he wouldn't have gone to Galilee had God not told him to do so in this dream. But the final part of our text is, as we've already seen, as we've looked at Matthew 2, Matthew provides for us really a broader view of what we have in this history. This is not merely filling in for us the timeline. The scriptures are teaching us that something quite significant has happened in Christ going to Galilee. We're told here, and this is how our text concludes, he went and dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. This is not accidental, of course. Our God is a God who rules over all things. Nothing happens by chance. But Matthew makes the point very clear. This is significant because this was anticipated right through the running ages, that Christ would be where he's at. Now, beloved, as we hold this text, in light of everything that we found up to this point, there's a picture of Christ that we can't miss. You remember my comments to you when we came to the exile of Christ. We, we, we reflected on the fact that Matthew's gospel really, really sets before us the kingship of Christ. You remember how the text begins. In chapter 1, we have the kingship of the Redeemer shown through his pedigree, as it were. And then when we come to Matthew 2, we don't find, as we do in Luke's gospel, shepherds coming. We find instead that Matthew highlights the kings or the magi who would come. These great men from the east. And you remember, it's not the shepherds that he emphasizes as Luke does. These ones are those who are going to bring the greatest gifts of the east. But what do we find? We find that Matthew is showing us a kingly redeemer who has to go into exile. A kingly redeemer who must be made a refugee. And then when we come to our text, this princely savior, he is taken out of Egypt and instead of going to Jerusalem, instead of being enthroned, We're told that the hatred of him is still so great that he must go to a place that's obscure, remote. Beloved, the picture that you and I are supposed to see is that Christ is indeed king. But he is a king variously, either in exile or forced into obscurity. This is a king in a state of humiliation. And if we keep that in mind, then this text makes all the more sense. You see, that very last verse in our text, verse 23, tells us that that Christ moving to this obscure place, to Galilee, it has fulfilled the prophets. And beloved, liberal scholars have jumped on this text really for the past 200 years and have said, "Here, here you see Matthew has made a mistake. And they say that because in the text, we're told something has been fulfilled, that the prophets said would be fulfilled. But as we read the prophets, these words never occur. Nowhere in the entire Old Testament do you find the words, he shall be called a Nazarene. Beloved, there is is no cause whatsoever to think that the the Spirit-inspired writer here made a mistake. 
want you to notice that even in the text itself, there's all the evidence that the Spirit of God is really helping us think about something broad. Uh, helping us think about not just one particular prophet, but really a theme right throughout. I want you to notice that the text begins in verse 23 with these words, that it might be fulfilled. That's a formula that Matthew uses ten times throughout the gospel. Five times when he uses that, Matthew cites the specific prophet that he has in mind. Four times. When he's speaking about that, he uses a de- the definite article, the prophet Matthew refers to. He doesn't do either case here. He says, the prophets. He's speaking here, thinking here of more than one. But I also want you to notice the words, shall be called a Nazarene, the content, not just the form, but the content of this text. Matthew tells us that this was fulfilled, that he shall be called a Nazarene, was fulfilled when he moves to a place called Nazareth. Now, I want you to notice before we begin, beloved, he says that the moving of Christ to Nazareth fulfilled prophecy. There is no mention here about a dedication in the temple. There is no mention here about specific religious vows. What Matthew, the plain reading of the text, tells us is that this was fulfilled when Christ moved to the city of Nazareth. Now, what do we make of that? Well, Matthew is telling us that Christ shall be called a Nazarene because of the place in which he lives. There is a connection between the name that Christ has, a Nazarene, and the place in which he dwells, which means there is significance to the name. The name itself is derived from the word netzer. The word from the Hebrew means simply a sprig or a root. Take what we have in Isaiah 11. There shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse and a branch. That's our text, that word from our text. A branch shall grow out of his roots. The word branch there is the word netzer. The same idea is communicated to us in Isaiah 53. He shall grow up as before him as a tender plant and as a root out of a dry ground. The sense is, Nazar, the idea there is, is that this is a sprig that grows. And as the prophets unfold this idea of this branch growing, note how the prophet says, he will grow, it will be as out of a dry ground. An unlikely place. He will come out of obscurity. He will be a branch unexpected. Then I want you to take note of the place where this place called Nazareth, that's Nazareth, is found. It's in Galilee. The prophet Isaiah calls Galilee, Galilee of the nations, or Galilee of the Gentiles, because it was a mixed place. It was not that kind of place that Judah had become, where, where those who were faithful to the Lord gathered. It was a place where you had worshipers of Jehovah standing side by side with heretics, even pagans. Galilee of the Gentiles. That's where Nazareth is found. To go even further, note how the people of God, note how the church, rather, in the first century view this place. Shall, those Pharisees ask, search and look, for out of Galilee ariseth no prophet. 
This is not the place where you would expect anyone who is holy. You would not expect to find the servant of the Lord, let alone the Messiah, in Galilee of the Gentiles. But take even Nathanael, who mentions Nazareth by name. How does he see Nazareth? Can there be any good thing come out of Nazareth? Holding all of these things together, the significance of the name itself and the place that belongs to it. Beloved, what do you find here? Is that Nazareth is ignoble. It is a place of obscurity. It is a place of lowliness. It is a place regarded by all people as really a sprig, as something, as a growth that you would not expect even. Something that was certainly no, no great, no great figure in the minds of those who lived in the first century. Now, if we hold all of these things together, that Christ is called the one who is the branch, that he would come as one out of obscurity, that our Christ would come and enter into great humiliation, and all, all throughout his life he would be marked by this lowliness, then we understand what Matthew is telling us here. Christ would be called a Nazarene. He would be called a branch that would grow out of a dry ground, a place unexpected, a place obscure, a place that was lowly and ignoble. And beloved, this was precisely what the prophets right through the centuries had promised. This Christ would come lowly, He would come in an estate of humiliation. And beloved, we see that in our text before us. Here you have the name, Netzer, and the place, Nazareth, coalescing to show us the lowliness of our Christ. And beloved, that is our theme for this evening, this morning rather, that Christ was marked by extreme lowliness to accomplish redemption. Christ was marked by extreme lowliness to accomplish our redemption. And I want us to consider that under two headings. I want us to consider the kind of poverty that you see in this text. And poverty, I don't mean just monetary. Poverty, I mean even in terms of reputation. The text tells us he came and he dwelt in a city called Nazareth. And I've already told you the significance of that. But but remember how even the circumstances show us the lowliness of Christ here. Show us how low our Christ stooped. He leaves exile. Exile itself being a shameful thing. He leaves exile and his homecoming doesn't send him to a throne. There's no fanfare. He's sent to a place called Nazareth. Where people wonder, could any good thing come from it? Beloved, what you see here is that Christ entered into an uncommonly low estate. The lowliness of Christ that we have in this text is incredible, and it should grip us. I want you to see this, first of all, just in terms of what he himself experiences. First of all, the prophet anticipated this in Isaiah 53, did he not? He says, He hath no form nor comeliness, and when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. 
And, and beloved, when you read through the Gospels, you need to keep that text behind you. That, that's a text that should always be in the back of your mind as you read. Because when you have then John sending his disciples, disciples who, by the way, are still following John, disciples who had heard the words that John had said, Behold the Lamb of God, and yet they didn't follow him. They still held on to John. When John's in prison, he sends his, these disciples to Christ. With a question, art thou he that should come, or look we for another? Do you realize what that question is saying? It is really saying something behind it, isn't it? Christ has taken upon himself a lowliness. That even with John the Baptist indicating this is the Lamb of God, there were still even those who heard that who wondered, is this really he? There was no glowing. There was no visible radiance that came from Christ. In fact, instead what we find is a Christ who, as Nathan puts it very pointedly here, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Can any good thing come from one who is called a Nazarene? Beloved, this continues really right through his whole earthly life. Foxes have olds. The birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. Beloved, you see the extent then that the Nazarene Christ here will take upon himself as he walks as one, a king still, but a king and humiliation. I mean, beloved, remember this. That that moment in Luke 12, Jesus, when he went on the Sabbath day through the corn, and his disciples were hungered and began to pluck the ears of corn and to eat, that was a work of necessity. They had so little. Christ had no room even to sleep most nights. And his disciples had not enough to eat to store up on the day before the Sabbath day that they would have famished had they not plucked the ears of corn on the Sabbath. This is what it is to follow Christ. Because Christ himself has entered into extreme lowliness. Christ himself will be regarded by men as lowly and he will take upon himself a lowly form, that of poverty. As well, as as this reputation that that all people regard as, as being really ignoble. This is the lowliness of our Christ set before us clearly. Beloved, you see this. But you might say, well, this is not necessarily uncommon. Surely others have entered that kind of experience too, haven't they? That's why the next consideration is so important. Not just the lowliness, beloved, but but we need to contemplate to the person who entered into that lowliness. The person who is called a Nazarene. Beloved, when we think of Christ's humiliation, we are to remember that it was not a nature that entered into lowliness. It was a divine person. And that's what we read in Philippians 2. 
being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. When Christ entered into this estate of humiliation, he entered, beloved, please understand this, he entered as the divine son of God. And yes, it's the case that the divine nature suffers no change, no diminution in its glory. But beloved, it was not an impersonal nature that was, that was made lowly. It was the divine Son of God who entered into humiliation. Let me just read to you, to, to show you that this is nothing new. Francis Turton puts it this way. This, is, this humiliation is properly said of the person and is to be referred to both natures. What he means by there is the human nature of Christ will really be in, in a kind of depression, will really go through all of this lowliness. And the divine nature here, though it suffers no change, it will really be concealed for a time. Take Wilhelmus Albrockel. The act of humiliation relates to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and not to one of his natures. Being a divine person, his entire suffering was therefore a work of divine efficacy and value. Beloved, that means then as we see Christ here called the Nazarene, Christ here marked by extreme lowliness. You and I are supposed to see here, it is the divine Son of God who entered into that estate. And why is that so significant? This is not just, friend, this is not just theological nicety. Why is it so significant? It's significant because when you and I read through the pages of the Gospels, that Christ was hungered, that he grew thirsty, that when we read here as we do in our text, that he would be marked by, by people as being ignoble, would be rejected out of hand simply because he would take upon himself this lowliness. It was the person, the second person of the adorable Trinity who had entered into all of that. He owns the cattle on the thousand hills, but when he looks for a coin to pay tribute money, he must get it from the mouth of a fish. His name is above all, above every name. And yet one who had become his own disciple asked, can any good thing come from one who is from Nazareth, from a Nazarene? Our Christ, holy and righteous, would enter into such an estate that men would revile him as a wine-bibber. They're speaking there of the Son of God. It was Christ who was reviled. It was the person of the Son of God who was hungered. The person of the Son of God that we see in this text marked by extreme lowliness. And that's why this lowliness is so uncommon. Because no king, no earthly king could ever cross such a great divide as being the divine son for whom and by whom all things were made to 
take upon himself the lowliness, the form of a servant, as we see he does in this, in this text. Beloved, that divide has never and can never be replicated. Never. The Lord says to him, I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession, and yet foxes and holes, foxes have holes, birds have nests, and he has nowhere to lay his head. He is the express image of his father. And yet, beloved, he's called and reviled as a Nazarene. This is the power behind Philippians 2, isn't it? If we think about how far Christ stooped, the Son of God stooped to be our Redeemer, then it raises the question, why are we so easily offended? Why are we a people who are so quick to take up our right and our cause? Why are we so slow to implement what you find in Philippians 2? That, that calling to take upon us the likeness of Christ. Beloved, there's a very simple answer to the, all of those questions. The reason why, and this is the Apostle's point, the reason why we are so quick, the reason why we are, we are a people still so proud, so easily, so easily upset, if, if, if even slightly, Somebody seems to cross us. The reason why is because we don't think about the humiliation of Christ as we ought. There in that text, you remember in Philippians 2, that is the apostle's argument. If we rightly understand Matthew 2, beloved, if we rightly understand what is being communicated to us here, we will be a people very different than we are. We will be a people who see that if our Christ stooped so low, who are we? Who are we to be so quick to insist on ourselves and on our own rights? That brings us to our second head. And that is the purpose of Christ's humiliation. The purpose of Christ's humiliation. I want you to notice in the text, this is communicated to us powerfully. Being warned of God, the text says. The word there, warned, I remind you, is translated elsewhere, commanded. God has commanded Joseph to what end? That he might turn to this part of Galilee. So, so God has actually commanded Joseph to go to Nazareth. That's the sense of the text. And he's done this, and he tells us here in verse 23, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophets. The idea there is is that God has commanded Joseph to do this, and the purpose behind it was that he would fulfill what had been promised. Namely, that Christ would be marked as a netzer, as a branch growing out of a dry ground, as one who is in lowliness. One who would be marked by great humiliation. That's why, says, says Matthew. And the sense there then is in this text, First of all, of course, there is a purpose to Christ moving to Nazareth. This is not accidental. We know that because this is the God of providence who's working here. But there's a real purpose to him being called a Nazarene. We're also told here that this is something that has been revealed. God had already said that these things would come to pass through his prophets. 
Well, beloved, what you're supposed to see here then, as this is something revealed by God's prophets, and as this is something communicated to us in the text, we're being told that there is something in this that is integral to Christ's work as a Redeemer. This entering into lowliness, even in his life, even before the cross, has a real purpose for his work as our Savior. Now, what do we make of that? Well, beloved, if Christ had to enter this humiliation to accomplish our redemption, it's important. It's important that we spend some time contemplating it. And I'd remind you that what I'm referring to here is not the necessity of the incarnation. I'm not talking here about a necessity of his sufferings, his final sufferings and death. I'm talking about the necessity that he would be called a Nazarene in his life. That he would be marked by lowliness in his life. That is too integral to his work as our Savior. The text that helps us think through this, first of all, and and most obviously is Hebrews 2. The text there says this, he says, In all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren. The word there, it, it behooved him, translated, you could translate elsewhere, was necessary to him. That's the force of the apostle's argument. It was necessary for him to be made like unto his brethren. And I remind you that in Hebrews 2, where this text is found, There, the apostle is not talking only about the sufferings and death of Christ. He's talking even about his entering into temptation and suffering under it. He's talking about the earthly ministry of Christ, not just Calvary and not just Gethsemane. He's saying it was necessary for him to be made like unto his brethren. But the question is why? Why? Well, beloved... In that text, we're told it was necessary that he might be our faithful and our sympathetic high priest. Christ must enter into this, must be marked by lowliness, says Paul in Hebrews. He must be marked by lowliness that he might be a faithful and sympathetic high priest for us. Now, what do we make of that? I think to help us, it would help us to remember even some things we thought about when we were reflecting on Psalm 45. You remember that there we're told that Christ's human nature was fitted for his task. That body and soul were fitted to do all that was necessary to accomplish our redemption. And that had implications. That meant, as we said before there, that Christ, even his human heart... His human soul, even that was created more disposed toward mercy than any other man's heart ever could or would be. He was fitted for his office. But beloved, as we look at this text in Hebrews 2 and use that to understand what we find in our text, Matthew 2, this morning, what we find is not only was Christ created This way, his body created this way, his body and soul both fitted peculiarly for his task. But even according to Hebrews 2, his circumstances were fitted to the same end. John Owen puts it this way. He says, when we understand this text, we're supposed to see here 
that these experiences, this entering into lowliness, did not implant mercy in him, did not dispose him to mercy itself. He was already merciful, and of course, as the divine Son of God, uncreated and eternal, was already disposed with love toward his own. But, says Owen, it excited, provoked, and drew forth by his own temptations and suffering, mercy. It excited and provoked by the sense and experience that he himself had of those miseries. Now, let me, let me explain to you basically what Owen is saying. He's saying here pointedly that Christ entering into this lowliness, being even marked by it, staggeringly, it was to make him one who knew experientially what his people underwent in this life. That he might, and this is, the te- this is what Owen says, that he might be all the more excited, provoked, and drawn forth as he reflects upon his own experience that he had of those miseries. The whole point of Hebrews 2 is not to talk about the unchangeable God and, and, and the mercy and the grace of God flowing from the eternal counsel. The whole point of Hebrews 2 is to talk about the man, Christ, as he still lives to intercede for his own. And that means then for our text, when we read that Christ is to be marked by this humiliation, we should see here that Christ is entering into this as it were, to make him all the more excited, all the more provoked to show mercy to his own. By reflecting upon his own experiences as one marked in this way, the sense is that he would be, again as Owen puts it, well disposed, readily disposed, even though he would have had mercy already within his heart for them before. What's striking is, in this text, beloved, we're also reminded that in the incarnation and through Christ, a state of humiliation, that text, Isaiah 63, 9, takes upon itself a very literal fulfillment. You remember there, the prophet says, in all their affliction, he that is God was afflicted. Beloved, in the incarnation, in Christ becoming a Nazarene, marked by humiliation. This was quite literally fulfilled as he is our God-man, as he walked our incarnate Christ. The sense, beloved, we should take from this is, it's it's a sort of analogy. You have here a Christ who always, was disposed with mercy and love toward his own. But a Christ who even through his experiences would be provoked, as the writer of the Hebrews puts it, to show mercy, to show care and even sympathy toward his own as they themselves follow him. As we close, beloved, it's important to remember as a Christian how to read these gospel accounts how to make sense of Christ being here called a Nazarene. What we're being told here is that he walked in such a way, took upon himself this lowliness, that he might be, 
fitted. Hebrews 2 and Hebrews 4. Fitted to be a sympathetic high priest for you. Beloved, he had no need as the divine son of God for anything. All that Christ undergoes in his life, in his humiliation, is as we've just reflected on, is that he might be now your living and sympathetic high priest. Marked by this lowliness. Touched. Touched by extreme poverty. That he just might be more and more sympathetic to his own. When you read in Matthew 2 this, you should see this as lowliness for the believer. Lowliness for you. And that prompts the question, Christian, if Christ has stooped so low, are you being made like him? If he is, if he has walked this path, Beloved, if he has been willing to go so low and to stoop so far, do we have any likeness in us to Christ with regard to this lowliness? Can we kill pride? Can we be a people, a people who are slow to give offense and slow to take offense? Can we be a people who are very quick to lay low Well, this text asks you and it asks me that very basic question. If the Lord called us to be marked in this way, do we think that we are greater than our master? The exhortation from the text, beloved, is see here Christ who is offered to you. If you're not in Christ, Here you find a Christ who is offered to you, who has for sinners stooped so low, for sinners have made himself a sympathetic high priest. And so it's all the more provoking to God if you reject him. All the more provoking to God if you reject a Christ who comes to you, calls you to himself and says, I am meek and lowly of heart. All the more provoking if your pride will prevent you from taking hold of this Christ who offers himself to you so freely. But for the Christian, beloved, this text should hold out to you both comfort and a command. The comfort is that he stepped so low for your sake. He stooped so low for you. And Christian, what does that say of the inestimable love he has for his own? But the command is, of course, as we begin, this is a pattern. Christ is the exemplar. Beloved, we must be different people. This text must change us. Every text in God's word should be forming us more into Christ's likeness, but beloved, This text should mark us. And if we leave this place no more at war against pride, 
no more at war against, against all that is within us that stands contrary to this lowliness of heart. Beloved, we've not heard the word right. And so, Christian, see here a Christ who has stooped so low for you. And as the apostle urges us to think upon it, we should seek in earnest that he would make that lowliness found in our own breast as well. Amen.